Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikvat Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but if you want the full experience, please join us on Zoom or in the building Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service. For the Zoom link, please contact tikvatdirector at gmail.com or contact us on our website, tikvatisrael.com. There you can also support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and find helpful resources. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of His Word. I'd like to begin by talking about our friend Samson. So who is this guy? Well, after the death of Moses, there was another guy that led the Israelites into the land, and that was Yehoshua or Joshua. After Joshua's death, that's when things went a little south, and they got into these cycles, and it's the period of the judges, if you've ever read that. So here's what happened in the cycle. You'd have disobedience and idolatry. That would lead to trouble with the Philistines oppressing them. This is a, a foreign uh, nation in, in the land of Canaan where they were, the promised land. Then they would cry out to God for a deliverer. God would hear their plea in his mercy, and he would send them a charismatic deliverer like Samson or Gideon to help them out. And they would be thankful for, you know, about, probably about five minutes or so and then uh, and happy. And then they would backslide into the disobedience because they get, oh, we're fine, you know, and the idolatry. And that would lead to oppression from the Philistines, which would lead them to cry out. You see how it's starting the cycle again? You catching my drift? Okay. I don't have to say it over and over and over, but but you get it. But that's actually what happens if you read through the book of Judges. And there's a common phrase in the book of Judges that happens over and over. And uh, this, is, uh, this is what it says, and read it uh, with me if you'd like. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. I felt like I read that alone. Let's read it together again. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Okay, so even though God is supposed to be their king, the people just kind of do what? Whatever seems right to them, right? Without regard to the Torah, the instructions of God for Israel, or without regard to the God who brought them out of Egypt to give them his instructions. This is a kind of like, do what you feel attitude, right? Or what you think seems good. And this is what leads them into this cycle of idolatry and crying out. You know, it kind of reminds me of what Sinatra used to boast, right? Do you remember this song? I faced it all and I stood tall and did it my Right? That's the, that's the kind of, he would, fit, he would fit in well in this period, I think. And it is in this context that Samson the next charismatic deliverer appears, but he's kind of a interesting guy. And, uh, but things start off pretty good for Samson. This is even before he's born. This is what it says. B'nai Yisrael, the children of Israel, again, did what was evil in Adonai's eyes, and Adonai gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, there was a certain man from Zorah, from a Danite clan, whose name was Manoah. 
His wife was barren and bore no children. Then the angel of Adonai appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold now, you are barren and have not borne children, but you will conceive and bear a son. Now therefore be careful not to drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. For behold, you will conceive and bear a son. Let no razor come upon his head, for the boy will be a Nazarite to God from the womb. He will begin to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So in utero, Samson is dedicated to God with a special Nazarite vow. Very cool. Notice that the text also mentions avoiding unclean foods, unclean animals. And it mentions most of the requirements for a Nazarite there in the text. But in number six, it clarifies the full vow. So this is what it says. No wine, no grapes, no raisins, no grape skins, nothing like that at all. No shaving of the head and no contact with dead bodies and no unclean, nothing unclean, right? In some ways, this is similar to the special requirements for who? For the Kohanim, the priests. And it reflects the idea of holiness, which is a lot of what Leviticus is all about. The holier the calling, the higher the need for moral and ritual cleanness. So let's take it back to Samson's story and see what we find. So now, now we understand his vow, and we understand uh, his calling, and we understand the context of what was happening in the book of Judges. While his father and mother went down to Timnah, Samson went to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came roaring at him. Then the Ruach Adonai, the spirit of the Lord, came mightily upon him, and he tore him apart as one would have split a young goat, yet he had nothing in his hand. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Okay, so he kills a lion, which shows he has incredible strength. But there's a subtle clue here. Can we pull it back up, please? Did you guys notice uh, notice anything strange about the that relates to the Nazarite vow that he has? It says he. He didn't tell his father and mother. We'll get to that. That's good. Yeah, thank you, David. <laughs> but he he walks through a vineyard. Walks through a vineyard. Why? Maybe it was a, a shortcut? Imagine someone with a Nazarite vow. You're not supposed to touch wine. You're not supposed to touch grapes, raisins, the, even the skin of the, the grape, right? And what is he doing? He's walking past row after row of delicious, ripe grapes. Suspect, if you ask me, right? Why is he there? Or uh, the middle schoolers say, they don't say suspect, they just say sus, right? That's pretty sus. Can I say that? No, I can't get away with that. Okay, let's keep reading. So uh, this is the next verse. So he went down and talked with the woman, and she looked right in Samson's eyes. After a while, he returned to get her, but turned aside to look at the carcass of the lion. This is the lion that he just killed. And behold, there was a swarm of bees and honey in the carcass of the lion. So he scraped it into his hands and went on eating as he went. Now, when he came to his father and mother, he gave them some to them and ate it, though he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. David, notice again, he didn't tell his parents, right? That's, uh, that's strike number one. So, but this is a little strange, right? This is the lion that Samson just killed, torn apart with his bare hands because of his immense strength. And he turns aside to get some honey 
out of the carcass. Why is this weird? Not just weird, you know, that it's a weird story, but why is it strange for him because of the Nazarite vow? Well, it's it's a dead body. It's not human, but it's an animal. And the animal is torn. He tore it. And what is the word for torn in Hebrew? It's treif. And if you know modern Hebrew, what does treif mean? Treif means unclean. They took the word for torn, and that means, because any animal that's torn is unclean, and that means unclean, not kosher, right? If you go to, uh, if you go to Israel and you see clams for some reason, and you say, well, that's treif, right? It's not torn, but it's unkosher, and they'll understand what you're saying. Yep, that's treif. Okay, they might eat it anyway, but you'll all understand each other. Okay, so treif is the word for not kosher. But on the other hand, he doesn't touch the lion itself, right? What does he do? He's just kind of like getting some honey inside the lion. So it's it's probably fine, right? Probably. No, maybe not. Also note that something David pointed out. What does he, what does he not do? He doesn't tell his parents, right? Why would, why would that be? If this was 100% kosher, you probably say, oh, I got some honey from this dead lion that I tore apart. <laughs> but he knows it's not 100% kosher or hundo kosh, as I like to say. Can I get away with that? Hundo kosh? No? Okay. I'll keep trying. Uh, you may be familiar with the end of the story. After these flirtations with the unclean and this Philistine woman and many other women uh, who worship other gods and with the dead unclean animals and flirting with the grapes walking by them that make wine and juice, what happens to Samson? Ultimately, he loses his strength and he, he breaks his Nazarite vow, allowing a Philistine woman to cut his hair. So what is the point here? It's moral compromise having poor boundaries. How does this affect us? Well, we need to learn from Samson's choices because my family, God has raised the bar for us. Like the Nazarite vow, like the calling of a priest, like followers of Yeshua, we are to move toward being a light, being an example. And Israel was called to be a light to the nations. And sometimes that means making tough choices and having integrity and, and not making these moral compromises like Samson seemed to do. Notice this encouragement from Deuteronomy 12, 29 uh, through 30. When Adonai, your God, cuts off before you the nations that you are going into dispossess, when you have dispossessed them and settled in their land, be careful not to be trapped into imitating them after they have been destroyed before you. Do not inquire about their gods, saying, how do these nations serve their gods? I will do the same, right? Israel is supposed to influence the other nations for good, for the Torah, and toward the one God of Israel, not the other way around. Like Samson, Israel was called to be an influencer for what is right to have integrity. There is a higher standard for Israel as there is for all of us who follow Yeshua. There's supposed to be something different about our character, our morality, our ethics, our compassion. We are all 
influencers. Now I'm not talking about, you know, social media influencers, right? Because I know that's a thing, but I'm talking about how we influence those around us. You know, I've noticed that my son, he's not even one year old yet. He watches me and he often tries to imitate the things that I do and say, and he imitates others that he's around. And, uh, you know, I, how I talk to my wife, he's watching the jokes that I make, you know, he's, he's listening. And so when he starts talking and he starts telling terrible dad jokes like me, you know, we'll all know who to blame. It's not, it's not Sonia's fault, right? It's, it'll be my fault. But the point is we need to be aware of our influence, right? Cause we are all influencers and we need to use it for good. For someone who learned the lesson uh, the hard way, let's learn a little bit about Pastor Martin Neymoller. This is from the Holocaust Memorial uh, Day uh, site, uh, holocaustmemorialday.org. Martin Neymoller was born in Lipstadt in the west of Germany on the 14th of January, 1892. He was the son of a priest, and in 1910, he joined the German Navy. During World War I, he was assigned to a U-boat, a German sub submarine, and eventually became its commander. Neymoller followed in his father's footsteps and started training to be a priest in 1920. The 1920s were a difficult time for many in Germany, and Neymoller took a part-time job laying railway tracks to help to earn money while studying. Many people, including Neymoller, believed that the new German government, the Weimar Republic, was unable to deal with the continuing economic and political problems Germany faced. Support for radical political groups like the Nazis grew. Life worsened for most Germans when the Great Depression, a worldwide economic crisis, started in 1929 with businesses closing and many people losing their jobs. During the 1920s and the early 1930s, the Nazi party under Adolf Hitler became increasingly popular. They blamed the country's difficulties on Jews, foreigners, and the weakness of the Weimar government and promised they would improve ordinary people's lives. Neymuller was one of the Nazi party's early supporters. After being ordained in 1929, he remained a strong supporter of Hitler, despite the party's hatred, hatred of and discrimination against Jewish people and other groups. Like many Germans at the time, Neymuller believed that the Nazis and Hitler would provide strong leadership to make Germany a powerful and respected nation again. He also saw the Nazi party as a way for Germany to return to the Christian morals he thought had been abandoned, even referring to Hitler as an instrument sent by God. Neymuller's eventual split with the Nazi party came when they started to control the German Protestant church. They appointed an official leader of the church and changed the text of the Bible to remove what the Nazis saw as Jewish ideology. After meeting with Adolf Hitler in January 1934, Neymuller started to see the Nazi state as a dictatorship. Even then, although Neymuller criticized the German government for interference in religious matters, he did not criticize yet the discriminatory laws forbidding Jewish people from marrying non-Jews and preventing Jews from having jobs in the government. Neymuller himself had anti-Semitic views. In the 1920s and 1930s, he referred to Jews as a despised people and Christ killers. The only arguments he made were that Jews should be allowed to remain members of the church once they converted to Christianity, and that the German government should not interfere with the way churches were run. Neymuller's opposition to the Nazi regime's rules for churches saw him arrested several times as he became increasingly critical of the Nazis and Hitler. 
In July 1937, he was arrested again, held for eight months without trial, and rearrested immediately after his release by the Gestapo, Germany's secret police. He was then sent to um, Schachenhausen concentration camp. At this point, these camps held political prisoners in addition to those perceived as threats to society, such as Jewish people, gay men, Roma and Sinti people, and asocials, including alcoholics and beggars. In 1941, Neymuller was transferred to the Dachau concentration camp, where he would spend most of the rest of the war. Finally, in 1945, he was transferred to another camp in Austria, where he was liberated by American troops in April 1945. After World War II, Neymuller repeatedly expressed regret at his previous support for the Nazi party and his failure to oppose it more broadly. In October of 1945, just a few months after the war ended, Neymuller headed a group of, of, of German churches who admitted they did not do enough to oppose the Nazi regime. Neymuller was one of very few Germans who called on their fellow citizens to accept res their responsibility for Nazi atrocities too, saying this in a sermon in 1946. We must openly declare that we are not innocent of, of the Nazi murders, of the murder of German communists, Poles, Jews, and the people in German-occupied countries. And this guilt lies heavenly, heavily upon the German people and the German name, even upon Christendom. For in our world and in our name, these things have been done. The poem for which he has become most well-known, First They Came, was also written in this post-war period. <clears throat> First they came for the communists, and I did not speak out, because I was not a communist. Then they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out, because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out, because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out, because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak out for me, unquote. We who follow Messiah are called to a higher moral standard, not just to look out for ourselves, but to conform to the heart of Messiah, who served others and was an example of compassion and moral rightness. Sometimes in the historic church, they will say that Yeshua died to free us from the law or free us from the Torah. But actually, Yeshua raised the standard of the Torah for his followers. This is what it says in Matthew 5. You've heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever commits murder shall be subject to judgment. But I tell you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be subject to judgment. You've heard it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that everyone who looks upon a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I mean, yeah, I could go my whole life not murdering anyone and not cheating on my wife, and should I therefore pat myself on the back for fulfilling these commandments in the Torah? But it's more challenging, right, to shun anger and to shun lust, which are the intentions behind these commandments in the Torah. Yeshua is raising the standard. And this brings us to this week's Torah portion, Amor. The Parsha starts off by giving the holiness code for priests, the Kohanim. Like the Nazarites, they are not to approach a dead body, um, except for, as we read, uh, as Clarine read, if it's a, a, um, for a close relative, but there's a, there's a special calling that priests have. Um, they also, there's restrictions on who they can marry, 
They, they can't marry a woman that's uh, been previously married. There's a higher standard because of their unique calling and role within Israel to intercede for the rest of Israel. And this is also from this week's Parsha. So you, you are to keep my mitzvot commandments and do them. I am Adonai. You must not profane my holy name, for I will be made holy among the children of Israel. I am Adonai who makes you holy, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am Adonai. There's a lot in that short verse right there. There's a lot packed in there. So can we can we put it back up, please? Thank you. So by by keeping the Torah, the holiness of Israel sanctifies the name of God, for it is the Lord who makes them holy to begin with, who chose them and rescued them. Later in the Parsha, we find the biblical feast like Shabbat and Passover and Sukkot and Shavuot and the counting of the Omer. Rabbi Yitz Greenberg teases out this interesting idea from the Parsha. The festival of Shabbat actually comes originally in the creation story, the seventh day of creation, but it is not actualized along with the other festival days until Israel accepts the covenant and celebrates the festival days. Rabbi Greenberg points out that the Jews are sanctifying these holidays, which implies a partnership with God. In other words, we know that God is all-powerful, and we know that God is king over all the earth. But kind of paradoxically, we still have to do our part. We can't hide behind God's sovereignty as an excuse to be slacking. We have a high standard. What we do matters. What we say matters. What we pray matters. God has lovingly invited us into his uh, to grow into his image over time and to be examples with a higher moral standard. Thankfully, though, we don't have to rise to God's standard on our own strength. Why? Because his spirit guides us and empowers us to live righteous and holy lives so that we no longer do as we please, right, our old ways, but we live to please him over time because he conforms us to his image by his Holy Spirit. So let's close with this uh, encouragement from Rav Shaul to the Philippians. Feel free to read it with me if you'd like. I guess you can. So I'll just read it to you. Therefore, my loved ones, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now even more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For the one working in you is God, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's God himself that enables us to follow him and to reach that higher standard over time as we grow and conform to his image. Amen. Avinu, our father, we thank you that uh, you are faithful to us, Lord, and uh, you give us many chances to, uh, to come to you and to, uh, to grow and to learn. And we thank you, Lord, that even though you are king over all the earth, you have still called us to partner with you, to be junior partners in the tikkun olam, the restoration of the earth. And uh, you have called us to, to have 
um, morality and to, to be ethical, to be compassionate more than the, the common culture of the world. Um, because you have called us your own, you called us by name and you've made us holy. And we are, we are your priests, Lord. We are the, the, the priesthood of, of all followers of Yeshua. And uh, so we ask that you would help us to walk in holiness, not in a holier than thou sense, but in a humble sense that we are following you and that we know that we are influencers, Lord. Help us to take our influence seriously, uh, especially with the young ones that um, are in our care and in our, in our purview, um, because they are watching what we're doing. Um, and uh, we need your help, Lord, because we can't do it on our own strength. So we need your help to conform to your image um, by your by your Holy Spirit, that we can put away the things of our um, of our old life uh, of of death and sin, and walk in a new life of resurrection. In Yeshua's name, we pray. Amen.